Any prayer requests tonight? Um, I'm going to make a prayer. I'm going to do a special prayer tonight myself for all of you. Um, so you just know in advance I'm going to do that. But any prayer requests from you guys? Um, I've got a couple, but... I have one. Yeah. My, um, my mom um, just had colon surgery, and she was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, but now she's here at our house um, recovering. So her name's Marilyn, and just prayers for a... Um, Prayers uh, for fast recovery and um, prayer of thanksgiving that the uh, that the surgery went well. Sure, sure. Glad to, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was good to... You guys were on last night, <laughs> weren't you, at Francis? I, I was not. Unfortunately, I was trying to cook dinner, but I think my husband was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to see him. He looked like he was in. For those of you who don't know, we've been doing Tolkien's. We just finished up Tolkien's trilogy, the, the um, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings. Um, and we touched on an amazing subject. If you know the, if you know the movie, Aragon goes into the land of the dead, which is what Odysseus did, what Aeneas did, what Dante did. So we talked about that. He, if he didn't go into the land of the dead and enlist the army of the dead, they would not have won that war. And what does that mean? That he did that? I'm not going to. We've not. You know, we've not watched the movie together. But to me, it's a profound question. You either pass that off and say it's nice fantasy, or it's going to our faith about our relationship to the dead that the world doesn't understand. So huge question. Anyway, I was glad Bill was there. Um, and I guess, I guess, Michelle, indirectly, you were in the... Could you hear anything in the kitchen, or were you... No? Yeah. Sorry, Connie. Okay. No, that's okay. I'm sorry. Could we pray for Joe again, Joe Boychuk? Uh, we prayed for him several times before. Um, unfortunately, it looks like they have figured out that he has um, possibly ALS. You know, he's bedridden. I mean, he's he's 50, 51 years old. And his parents are 83, and I think Marianne is 80. And they're just, I mean, they're having to do everything for him. They have to get up and move him around because he can't do it. And she was at St. Elizabeth's last night, and Father Smith was there, Father Dennis. And he, he said the Mass, you know, honored in it for Joe. But she was just, I mean, she was... And now she's mad at God. You know, I was trying to oh, tell her. Gosh, no. And then she's like, no, I'm mad at God. Why, you know, why is this happening? And I'm like, and I really, I know what to tell her, but I didn't, I don't think it was the right time. <laughs> she, you sure you do, Connie. Find a time. I know, I yeah, know. I'm going to yeah. tell her, but she... Connie, do. Find, I mean, find... I will, no, I will. I guarantee you. Yeah, good. Yeah, because uh, she needs to hear that from somebody... She respects and trusts. Um, right, right. Who, who, and, and, who, who will say it in the right spirit? Um, right, exactly. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, like I said, he was born with spina bifida. He has done well. He had the surgery. They never expected him to do as well as he did. And now that he's fifty-one, 
you know, so he's... Say what I he's mean, got again. What is he... Wait, it, well, they called it... Um, what were the initials you used? ALS. Uh, ALS. ALS. What is it? It's a muscular disease. She originally called it degenerative um, neuromuscular disease and possible uh, ALS. What's, what are the initials? Lou Gehrig's disease. It's yeah, it's, yeah. Disease. Lou Gehrig's. Have you heard of Lou Gehrig's? Yeah, but I don't know what the initials stand for. That I'm just. Yeah, to... it's, it's a long word. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. but nevertheless, he he's, he can't he can barely do anything for himself. Yep. And she she's just so upset. They're just so tired too. Yep. 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 And, yep. 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 And it's not like you know because I told her I can go over there and help, but I can't take him to the bathroom and you know pick him up and put him in the wheelchair. I mean, so it's just really tough on them, and they're old. You know, they're getting old. Are they going to get help? Because there are people who take those responsibilities, who, whose job it is to get somebody from one room to another and right, right, right. strong and enough I'm to sure, do that. And I'm sure that costs money because I know for my mom, we pay like eight grand a month. But the state, the state. No. No? Really? No, that's, that comes under long-term care. And if you don't have that insurance, if you don't have long-term care, Jesus you have to pay for it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So see, anyways, see if they can find a, a young boy, high school or college, who wants some part-time money just to be around occasionally to help something like that. That's yeah. what I told her. I said, y'all need at least five hours a day, three hours a day. But anyway, I'm going to keep working with her and uh, trying to figure out something to help him out. But I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, They're just such good friends. They're so Connie, sweet. I, God. <laughs> I can't see you sitting still at all. At all. At all. Oh, I do sit still. <laughs> I, I do sit still here and there. <laughs> Come on, let's, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'd like to say a prayer for all of us present and for those who are not. Um, Melody, um, Bob and Karen. Who else am I missing here? Um, for everybody who's, Sorry? Kay and David. Kay, oh, yeah, God, Kay and David. Gosh. I want to say a prayer for everybody. Um, it's been the inclination of this group, bless your oh, half-humble souls. How else, else can I put this? You guys are always ready to pray for somebody else. Always, always. Um, it's rare to hear you ask for prayers for yourself. So I'd like to offer a prayer for everybody in the group. Um, I'd like to ask you all to pray for Suzanne and me, particularly me. We all carry spiritual struggles, all of us, even if we go through the world with our personable characters, you know, every one of us. We carry sins, there are things deep within us that um, are our burdens. Um, it's rare to hear all of you pray for yourselves or ask, um, you're so concerned about the souls of others. So I'd like to ask, let a blessing be upon everybody in this group, whatever spiritual burdens um, that weigh them down, carry them, whether it's their um, groaning for other people whom they love. Um, Joe, um, Connie's brain for tonight, um, I'd like to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for her daughter, that the results came back positive. Um, Michelle's friend Marilyn, um, for the recovery, um, particularly while she's at their home. 
Um, it's not going to be easy for them to care for her. Um, it's often harder. But it's not her friend, it's her mother. Um, her mother, sorry, mom. Um, but most particularly for the burdens each of us carries. Um, this is a wonderful group. I don't see people in this group complaining. Um, it's just an awfully good group. Um, so, um, Holy Spirit, let all of us in this group um, find a strength in the graces that you offer to do those things that we cannot do on our own. We just cannot. So help us to receive the help that you offer and take it in our own efforts to deal with whatever it is each of us deals with, the struggles particular to each of us. Um, I ask for a special prayer for um, the father of um, one of our dear friends, Isela. Um, her father, um, Marco Antonio, is um, decaying quickly, and it doesn't look like he'll live much longer, be with him in this ordeal. Um, um, it'll be a passing for her. Um, let everybody, um, Anne said it really well, I think, let everybody find a strength in what we've learned about our faith, particularly from somebody like Boethius, but everybody really, um, to, to know, genuinely know with conviction that you are always at work. So even if the cost of it is suffering, you know, as it is um, for Joe and the family and the heartbreak, and um, we live in a world in which we're encouraged to believe that we'll only be happy if we're comfortable. So if we're made uncomfortable, somebody's got to be at fault. And if it's not the world, it's going to be God. We help us to know that that just isn't so. Um, Christ would not have gone to a cross. You would not have gone to a cross if you had not, if you'd not had to. So help us always to be glad, particularly when it's really hard, um, when we're in the midst of suffering. Strengthen every one of us um, to hold on to that day by day, all day long, um, and help us to find some consolation. The world doesn't offer consolations very often, truly I'm saying that. To find some consolation in the prayers that we offer for each other. What a great strength. Um, a great source of gratitude um, we have each other praying for each of us so we offer these prayers Christ in your name Amen um, okay let's um, a couple of things I'm, I want to get to the poems quickly because I want to get to Chaucer as quickly as I can um, in one of the readings over the weekend, um, there was a, one of, uh, in the Magnificat, there was a side reading um, that precedes the Mass. It's just, I think it's part of the format of Magnificat. It's a passage from Sirach on free will. And I was so stunned by it, because you know that it's one of the lines of argument that we've been taking from the beginning, that free will is essential to every one of the works we read. Absolutely essential to Boethius. It's absolutely essential to our faith. The Protestant reformers didn't believe in it. 
Calvin denied it, Luther denied it, modern Freud denies it, Darwin denies it. We live in a world in which we're encouraged to think we're not responsible for ourselves. What a sad loss. Um, how do we become ourselves? True, I'm asking this really seriously. One of, the, one of the issues that I had with Aragon last night going into the land of the dead is it's that moment when you finally become yourself. You accept who you are. You, cl you claim yourself. How do we do that if we're not responsible for ourselves? I mean, it's as if we'll be living in illusions all of our lives, trying to be somebody we're not. Great expectations, Mike. You know, expecting to be somebody we're not, measuring ourselves by other people, and not becoming ourselves. So the whole issue of free will is at the center of our faith. Anyway, I came across this thing in Sirach, um in the Magnificat and enjoyed it. So I just want to read a few of the lines. It's from Sirach, if I remember, it's, it's um, chapter 14 or 15. So if you want, you'll have to look it up. It's in, it's in the Magnificat, but you can go to the readings, go to the readings in the Bible. But here are the lines. Do not say it was God's doing that I fell away. For what he hates, he does not do. Do not say, he himself has led me astray. Don't blame God, for he has no need of the wicked. Abominable wickedness the Lord hates. Does not let it happen to those who fear him. God in the beginning created human beings and made them subject to their own free will, for choice. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. Loyalty is doing the will of God. Set before you are fire and water. To whatever you choose, stretch out your hand. But for everyone are life and death. Whichever they choose will be given to them. If they choose fire, they'll get fire. If they choose water, they'll get that. But this tendency of the modern mind to pity somebody because we're victims and we don't have any say, even if it means we go to a cross, it's still our will. We've got choices to make. So... Anyway, I was enjoying that. I just thought I'd pass it on to you guys because it's biblical and it's not philosophical. Here are the two poems that I wanted to read tonight. Did you guys, you guys, you guys, are you guys reading the letters that I send you, you know, in the afternoon before? Okay. So you've already read it. I'm, um, Suzanne came across this in the preface to Chesterton's Orthodoxy. It's the book we're going to shortly read in Francis. Um, I, I think it's an extra, I think Chesterton was, had the greatest mind of the 20th century. And I, I, you, you know that it would mean a lot for me to say that, because I wouldn't say that easily. You know how critical my mind is. He's just an extraordinary guy. He's a journalist, so he writes to ordinary people, but he's so profound in everything he does. And Orthodoxy was the book that really brought me to the church. And uh, it's just, it's a, it's a delightful, con it's full of humor, full of a charity, but it's profound in its ideas. In the preface to the work that she was reading, there was this, the, the um, editor presented one of these poems that I'd not read before. Chesterton wrote at least a hundred books. Um, Father Brown stories, voluminous, and collections of poetry. I just, and he did this while he was doing other things all the time. He, he wasn't in a cave the way I am. He, he is out, you know, in the world doing things, so... But this is one little poem from his collection of poems, and it speaks so directly to Chaucer that I wanted to read it tonight. So I'm going to read two poems. One, Timur Mortis, which is taken from the medieval ballad selections we have. Um, if you've got the poem, you know that, it, the, that the refrain is the um, Latin phrase, Timur Mortis, 
contribut me, which means death disturbs me, death troubles me. It's taken from the, um, the uh, what's the right of the dead? Um, what's it called? Uh, the, the right of the dead. Um, since I, I think the phrase is, since I've been sinning all day without repenting, the thought of death disturbs me. Um, so I'm going to put these two poems together. <clears throat> Timur Mortis, the medieval, the medieval lyric. In what a state soever I be, Timur Mortis, contribute me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking, the drift of it, the meaning of it. Timur Mortis, contribute me. It's interesting, remember, you guys, if you're paying attention, if you're holding on to things, Connie, um, <laughs> that remember the birds, remember we saw this in Homer, that was, God, that was a hundred years ago too, when we did Homer. Remember the birds are prophetic because they're close to the gods, that's why you pay attention to them, you listen to them. It's, it's Doc, Doc is a, she's a bird watcher, I mean she loves, we've got, you know, she put a little um, a pot out there and, and we've been watching birds take baths in it daily and we've got bird feeders in the front and backyard. It's, there's a friend of mine, an old colleague from Turkey, said that whenever he and his wife saw a cardinal, they always felt that it was a blessing. So I always, I always feel a joy pass through me when I see cardinals in our, you know, in our bird feeders in the front and back. Birds are sources of messages. They bring something from the heavens. Okay. So he hears a bird both weep and sing. Remember, I've said this. Every major poet, every major poet has written a song about birds because birds are images of the poets. They sing. It's like they bring Eden back to us. They're reminders of something good and bad. I mean, the things that we have to hear. And this bird, the tenor of her talking was, Timur Mortis, contribute me. The thought of death disturbs me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur mortis, contribute me. When I shall die, I know no day. What country or place, I cannot say. Wherefore this song sing I may. Timur mortis, contribute me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say. Father, he said in Trinity, Timur mortis, contribute me. All Christian people behold and see, this world is but a vanity, and replete with necessity, Timur mortis, contribute me. Wake I or sleep, eata or drinka, when eon my lasta end do thinka, for greater fear my sola do shrink, Timur mortis, contribute me. I'm slipping into Middle English, you know, because that's the way it would have, we've got an Anglica, Anglicanized form of it, but I'm slipping that in just so you can hear them. Wake or sleepe, eater or drinka, when e on my blast end do thinka, for great fear my soul do shrinka, timor mortis contribut me. God grant us grace him for to serve, and be at our end when we sterve, and from the fiend he us Preserva, Timur Mirtis, Contribut Me. Okay. Um, 
the Chesterton poem, if you've read, it's just beautiful. And by the way, it just captures the essence of Chesterton. You can't read him and not feel him being critical of the world and never condemning it. Always grateful. He, he has a way of presenting arguments in a spirit of gratitude and charity. It's just an amazing man. If, if you haven't read Chesterton's Orthodoxy, you should pick it up um, and do it as a side reading. Um, here's this little poem from Chesterton. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? If we could only live every moment of our lives that way, you know, I'd, um, if you read my note, you know it's the sort of Cinderella story. What, on what basis do we make our complaints? It's not like the world owes us anything or we didn't deserve anything. We, we, were, we were created freely by God. Why is not everything we do in Thanksgiving? If, even if we have something hard to take to the world, how can we not bring a spirit of gratitude? Here, I'll read it one more time. Here dies, so a day's passing. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world round me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? Gotta love the poem. Okay. Um, let's do Chaucer. Um... I want to do, um, I, we may not get to the white, in fact, we're not going to get to it because we started so late, but um, next week I'd like, um, I'll, I'll send you a list right away tonight of the, work, of the works that we'll do next week. Next week we're going to deal with the women. So the, the men are getting their comeuppance here. All the men are, are, what's the word that I keep using? They're all scoundrels. They're all scoundrels. Chaucer's view of men isn't very flattering. I mean, <laughs> so the the view of men, the friars, the um, the friars' tale last week, and the um, the or the partner, sorry, the partner's tale last week, the friar tonight and the summoner, give views of men who are scoundrels, just and they're church functionaries, they're officers of the church. They're supposed to be bringing the church to people, and what they're doing is using the church. So what we're seeing here in Chaucer is exactly what we saw in Dante's Inferno, in the level of fraud. Because remember, in the level of simony, we saw usually men of the church who had been selling church offices or all of those things. So Chaucer is giving us um, not a very flattering view of our church. And I want to ask why when we're done, but let's get through this. Because remember, this is a pilgrimage to St. Thomas Becket's Shrine. Beckett gave up his life for the church. They're all in the way. It's a, it's a, a form of penance. A, it's, a, it's a religious observance. The whole intention is to grow in holiness. And Chaucer's showing us the whole country. Every, every class of society is here. And except for the night, very few of them are very flattering. Okay, so... The women are Huh? The women are Yeah, so, sorry, so that's where I went. So... We've been dealing with these um, silly episode stories about people doing silly things, adultery and these other things, all in this comic spirit. 
And here, last week with the partner's tale and tonight with the friar and the seminar's tale, we're looking at men in the church who are not very admirable. They're just not good men. Next week, I want to deal with the women, the wife of Bath um, and women in the other tales. I'm going to send you guys some passages from Shakespeare's um, All's, All's Well That Ends Well. We did that early on. I don't know if you remember, but Helena was the heroine of that, and I'm not sure many people were taken with her. I, I happen to love her. She's not a very, she doesn't fit the feminist mold at all. She's, um, and, and I don't want to give anything away. I'm going to um, suggest you just look at some passages just to recall that. I'd like to set the women that we're going to look at next week, and I'll, and I'll give you the reading. I'll send it to you tonight after our class. Read those stories. I think it's The Clerk's Tale, The Franklin's Tale, The Wife of Bath. And just, if you can, take a look at Shakespeare's All's Well at, at a couple of the passages in which Helen is speaking. Because in one of the stories the Chaucer's writes about women, the Griselda story, the remarkable thing about Griselda is she obeys her husband in everything. He tries her again and again and again, and she never caves. She's absolutely faithful in giving up her life. At the end, she has to give up her marriage. She has to give up her children. All of these are tests by her husband. They're just tests. One of the parishioners at St. Francis said, when she got to the end, if, if, if she'd been the wife, she'd taken out her pistol and shot, and shot her husband. <laughs> she missed the next, the next meeting because I wanted to tell her if she did, she'd been accused of murder because she just, the whole point of what Chaucer's doing, it's like it's Boides again. We have to be careful of the judgments we make because we're so ready to condemn somebody when Chaucer's showing us just exactly that, that things aren't as they appear. But at the center of it is this woman who seems to be the model of the obedience asked of a wife. She doesn't seem to be. That's, you know, that's according to Paul, wives obey your husbands, husbands obey Christ. So I don't want to get into a, a discussion on this right now. But I want to look at her, and I want to look at these other women, and I'd like to include Helena in that, because I believe that, that Shakespeare's giving us an image of a modern woman doing the same thing, but in a very different spirit, different from a medieval ideal of a woman. So next week I want to look at women. And if, um, if the women do want to show up, I'll understand why. If anybody doesn't show up, I'm going to be calling you chickens for as long as I know you guys. We're going to look at the women, and the question that I'm going to ask is, why are the women, I'm, I'm saying this really seriously, why are the women so much better than the men? Melody's answer to that we already know, because they're women. And let me, let me put it in, the, in this context, just to, to try to heighten things. At Christ's crucifixion, everybody involved were men. All, all, all the men, all the negativity, all the injustices came from men. All of them. There's only one woman um, among them who might fit into that category, and it's the woman who challenged Peter. Every one of the other men, who, or, or every one of the other figures contributing to the, to the crucifixion are men. Mary's at the cross to suffer with him. Pilate, Herod. The disciples fled, all except John. Turn that around in a modern frame and put all the women in that position. 
Can we imagine that? I, I find it hard. I mean, in the modern world, I think women will find it easier to place themselves there, but not a lot of women, modern women, will identify themselves with Mary or Christ. You know, um, there's tensions there in the feminist movement in, in our world, so. But here in Chaucer's world, we, we'll, next week I want to look at the, the women, because the women do things that are remarkably good in a way that men don't. Why is that so? Is Melanie right? I'm just so sorry she's not here tonight. I would like to, you know, to have her hold on to this. But anyway, that's what we'll do next week, okay? So, um, very, just a, a couple of things to touch on before we look at the tales. Um, remember that the major theme running through the tales is um, the line from Boethius, Bonum est diffusivum, diffusivium, diffusivum. Goodness is diffusive. Goodness is diffusive of itself. God's goodness permeates the world. God made nothing evil. Whatever evil men commits, God is already working on to bring some good, even if the cost of it is a war or a cross or death. Bonum est diffusivum. Sui. Sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. Um, I've said that the poet is the one who brings everybody together. You know, the host is the one overseeing the company, but the, the company, but the poet is the one who actually brings it to us as a unified movement, as a pilgrimage. It's through him that we see. So in some ways it's through him that we experience the unity, even though even though these guys are comically always staring at each other. They almost have nothing good to say about each other. They always want to put each other down. Chaucer teaches us to laugh. Even when we're looking at awful things, adultery, murder, he puts everything before us in rhyme. And we talked about it. To me it's one of the most important aspects of the the work and most teachers will treat it as if it's window dressing, as if it's ornamental. It's not. It's absolutely integral to the form. He's showing us that always this harmony, this goodness, this beauty at work in the world. Can we hear it? Can we see it? His, all of his stories bring us to that, even when somebody has to undergo a real ordeal. Um, I talked about the comic nature of what Chaucer's doing, um, and I just want to touch on it again, but I want to I want to repeat it because to me it's so important. Remember last week I I introduced the distinction between comedy and tragedy, and said that in the ancient world um, they had festivals that were in the spring and winter that were both for comedy and tragedies. They presented both plays, um, but tragedy was looked at as the most dignified form of art, because to the pagan mind. Um, tragedy captured the essence of life. That all life ended in death. Death was inescapable. You could not avoid it. Nobody. Um, even if you were a good person, the, in, uh, in uh, Homer's The Odyssey, Menelaus is um, shown um, to have a destiny in the Elysium fields. He's going to be among the blessed because of his character. Probably because he suffered so much for Helen, I'm not sure, but um, he's destined to be to end in the Elysium field. So there was a place in hell for the blessed. There was some differentiation. 
just a, not a subtle, but some differentiation. But even there, they could not have known the blessedness that's held out in a Christian world. So tragedy was the most dignified form of art because it most fully captured the essence of the pagan experience, that all life ended in death. Yeah? Christianity blew that away. It's why Dante's work is called the Divine Comedy, why Boethius's work is comic, and why Chaucer is comic. Because even if they're dealing with painful things, suffering, or death, or sin, um, it cannot but be comic because to a Christian, that end, hell, death, is not inevitable. Um, remember, before Christianity, according to the Christian mind, all men were, um, were destined to damnation. Adam, Eve, Moses, Dante. When the Divine Comedy begins, Dante, we learn later, he's damned. Um, it's only through the help of Christ by going to him because he conquered death. That's why he went to a cross to conquer it. And we know that because he rose again. So the most important thing about Christianity is he answered the effects of the fall. The two effects of the fall were death and sin. Yeah? Um, so he, he, he provided an answer that the pagans didn't have. So in the, in the Christian worldview, um, the ultimate form that art should take is not tragic, it's comic. And Shakespeare even comes around to that because it, if you watch his later plays, we'll see it when we do Shakespeare, Hamlet, Lear. Every one of them ends with a death. And I'm going to argue when we do them that something amazing is happening with every one of those deaths that's different from the, what the pagan would have done with it. It's a changed world, um, e even though they end with death. Shakespeare's already subtle, subtly changing the nature of tragedy. And the change that begins in those late tragedies is completed in what we call the late romances. Winter's Tale, Twelfth Night, Cymbeline, plays like that. We're going to do maybe Pericles and for sure Winter's Tale. In Winter's Tale, the whole first part of the play is the Othello story told over again. It's exactly the Othello story. But instead of ending with Leontes dying the way the Othello does, the story stops and something happens to make it comic. Except it's not comic in the sense of the early plays, it's what we would call romance. What I would call Shakespeare's sacramental plays. That something sacramental is going on. So tragedy is assumed into a comic form. It's assimilated. So winter is followed by spring. Death is followed by a renewal of life. So Christ radically changed the whole pagan view of life, and that change is reflected in works of art, in literature, in comedy, and in tragedy. So is that clear? For the pagan, death was the end of things. There was no way to avoid it. He couldn't escape it. He had, he had no choice in the matter. When Christ came, he defeated death and left men with a choice. So now if men go to hell, it's not because it's inevitable, it's because they choose to. It's a choice. So 
um, tragedy is no longer tragic. It's stupid. It's just arrogant and foolish. Is that clear, you guys? It's so, you know, it's so in front of us and we don't see it all the time. Any you, let, let me stop. Any questions on this for a minute? It's so important. It, it helps explain why Chaucer can be so funny. It's not a technical thing. It's a reflection of a faith. And to miss that, you know, the way scholars do, to talk about language and text, and it's to miss everything. He's comic because he can't be otherwise. With Boethius in him, the way Anne said, there's no other way to look at the world. We've got to be grateful. If, if, our, if our faith is that God is there doing something, it's got to be reflected in our faith. A world that does not have that faith will not see things that way. Yeah? Okay, let me stop because this is too important. I want any questions or comments? This goes right to the heart. It's really interesting. You can read a story, and it will be nowhere made explicit in a story. You know, there's no lines going to explain this. And yet, when you read story after story after story after story, with all these rhymes and the sort of glad endings, you have to say that either he was terribly naive, or romantic, or stupid, or he had an extraordinary faith. And... If you understand Boethius, you'll understand that this is not a blind faith. Chaucer's faith is not a blind faith. It's an informed, intelligent faith. It can't be otherwise for a Christian. That's why this is so important. Let me stop. Any, any questions? Connie, you look so pensive. No? Anne or Michael? Mike, you got something. Go ahead. So, uh, what I'm getting from your discussion is the, the humor that Chaucer in, injects into his stories, especially, uh, especially the stories that display sinfulness or vices, uh, so the, he's he's making the, uh, the the characters that have these uh, these faults. He's making them objects of comedy or ridicule because uh, and because uh, to, to act uh, I don't know I, I guess I'm because sinfulness is is stupid. It reminds me of uh, Saint Paul. Uh, Talking about the stupid Galatians that they didn't uh, didn't get it, you know. So, is that what we're getting at here? Yeah. Except yes, 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 yes. It, Paul Paul is never comic. I mean, that I read, I can't remember a funny line. He's he's oh he gives him so he gives himself so completely to the cross. You know, Paul's great lines to me are the joy he takes in suffering. It's one of the repeated themes in his letters that he takes joy in suffering. So um, he suffers with people. We we don't see. I can't recall anything comic in any of Paul's letters. What 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 for me? I I feel most in his letters is this joy he takes in serving Christ. When we read Chaucer, we're we're seeing that there's this comic as because you know. Chaucer's not preaching the way Paul is. Chaucer's rendering stories. He's, he's, a, he's a writer like 
Homer or Virgil or Dante. He's giving us stories of ourselves. But every one of his stories is presented in a comic spirit. I, I think that comic spirit is a reflection of his faith and his charity. That he's actually living what Christ asks us to do in the way he presents his art. And, and the, the you know, we've talked about the importance of the rhyming, that it's an oral expression of constant presence of beauty and harmony and order. That's Boethian. So in the formal rhyme schemes, we actually have um, an oral representation and expression of um, beauty, order, while all these awful things are taking place. Um, but but that's orally, that's in the sound. What I'm saying now is what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to describe, what I'm struggling to describe is the comic spirit of his work. Everything is comic. Um, it's not just the rhymes, although the rhymes are essential. It's a comic spirit. And the point I'm making here is, for Chaucer is a Christian, who, by the way, who, who absolutely took Dante and Boethius seriously. Dante and Boethius were probably the two greatest influences in Chaucer's life. So he learned a lot from Dante. And, and you know that Dante's Terzarima, the, the three-line stanzas, do the same thing. It's a constant rhyming going forward. Chaucer's just taking a different form, but, but they're both comic writers. And I didn't want to lose the opening given here to reflect on that. Dante is comic. We, I, I know, or I, I'm assuming most of us, when we read the Inferno, get a little bit scared. We're, we're seeing hell. It's a scary thing. But it's comic. It's, you can't read it, even, even as frightening as it is or terrifying as it is, and without laughing. It's just stupid and, you know, it's not tragic the way the ancient Greek tragic, tragedies are. Neither is um, um, Chaucer's Tales. So what I'm trying to get at here is what I would call the comic spirit that informs everything they do, the way they look at things. That's not artificial. It's not superficial. It's not a surface. It goes to the essence of our faith. And I've just tried to give the explanation why. For, for a pagan, it couldn't have been other than tragic. For a Christian, it cannot be other than comic. Because we have a choice. Can you say something about comedy? Wait, can you hear? Can you say something about comedy always implying hopefulness? So Shakespeare's tragedies end in death. There's always a look toward mm -hmm. something after. Can death. you guys hear Suzanne? Go ahead, Doc. Um, comedies contain tragedy. Comedies take the tragic and say foolishness, whatever, but at the end of the comedy there's always hope. There's a marriage, there's a no, let me, yeah, because it's not always... Because it's not, because com when we in this age hear comedy, um, we're more likely to hear um, Laurel and Hardy or the Three Stooges, and that's not mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Yeah. Can you 
Yeah, let me take off from, you all understood that, Doc's, or prompting, actually. Let me look at it this way. Let me go back to Aristotle, who, who defined the difference in this way. All tragedies, um, tra tragedies and comedies are made up of movements from one position to another, okay? All tragedy takes the form of going from good fortune to misery. Something good seems to be there, and suddenly things turn and it ends badly. All comedy begins with something that looks like it's about to be tragic and it gets transformed and it ends in good fortune. So in the one, we move from good fortune to bad fortune. In the other, we move from bad fortune to good fortune. That's the difference between comedy and tragedy, yeah? Okay? But what, what she's um, suggesting here, because we've talked about this a lot, um, is that something that's always implied in tragedy, but very often critics don't give it enough attention. If you take Oedipus Rex at the end when he blinds himself, that's a horrible ending, that's a horrible death. Except in one sense, it's comic. I'm stretching things, but it, I'm, in, in some sense, in my own mind, I'm not. In one sense, it's comic in this sense. I don't mean it's Laurel and Hardy or Slapstick. It's that Oedipus now sees in a way that he never did before. That's a good in my mind, I'm saying this truthfully, I think he's a beautiful man. There's an extraordinary spiritual depth to him now because he can see things, even Theresius can't. So all tragedy implies Boethius's argument. In this sense, even in tragedies, the injustices are answered at the end. So the ending is always a preparation for a new order. All the sins have been answered. They're all, you know, people are dead. It's the beginning of a founding. That was true of the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. That was one of the great themes of the ancient works. So even though it ends with dread and death and a darkness, um, it, it, it actually offers a hope. It's not incorporated into the action because it ends with a death. But there's a hope that now that all the things are answered, we'll have a better life. Something good will follow. In Oedipus Rex, it does, because Oedipus is going to go to Colonus, and he's going to be assumed. He'll undergo a divine assumption, much like Mary's or John, or I mean Christ. So even the, even the pagans had some sense that there was something better. So comedies don't end on hope. Comedies end on the fulfillment of hope. They end on a joy. All the hope is answered. If, if comedies begin with some tragic potential... Whatever the problem is, is answered, and it's fulfilled. Comedies end in joy, in marriage, or problems answered. That's the nature of comedy, to end in good fortune. We're glad, happy. We're at rest, because the, the, the good that we desire has been realized. Yeah? So even if tragedies end on death, in some sense they imply a hope for something more, because all the wrongs have been answered. There's been a cleansing, a purging, a catharsis. Okay? So the point I'm making here is that Chaucer's tales are comic through and through. Even if they end with, like the partner's tale, even if they end with death, as much as we might feel death, or even in the night's tale, remember when it ended with our seat's funeral, 
we can't give in to misery. Even while I, that's part of the comedy of the beauty of those lines that, you know, he's describing our seed as death and all the women and the men weeping. We've got these comic couplets, you know, carrying us through. He doesn't allow us to slip into despair or, a, or an overwhelming sorrow or an anger. Because those passions are not good. They're not in tune with God. Yeah? Are you all following? They're out of tune. We learned that in Dante. I mean, the people who are in hell are in hell because they're out. Remember, one of the great lessons, I'm so sorry Melody's not here. Remember, one of the great lessons in the, in the uh, Inferno is Dante begins in pity. He feels sorry for Francisca. He carries pity along, but he's got to learn to get rid of it to, because if he does, he's actually going against God's will and he's enabling, supporting evil. That's absolutely Boethian. That's, but, but that's absolutely Catholic. Let me put it that way. I mean, one of the dangers for us is pity. Our church does not ask us not to feel pity. Our church does not ask us. Pity's a, pity's a natural Christ-felt pity. When he looked down at Jerusalem, he was weeping because he knew it was going to be destroyed. But if, if our response to the sorrows, particularly of those we love, is pity and we get caught in it, we start making excuses or enabling, then we're siding with bad. We're taking the side of bad against God. It's not helping those we love. It's not working with God. So Chaucer never lets us give in to those things. So not only is the form, the oral form, reflective of Boethius, you know, the rhyming scheme, it's this, what I'm calling the comic spirit of the way he presents things. Everything he sees is through the spirit of faith and charity. He has this amazing charity. He can look at things that are not good. He can, I mean, by the way, well, let me put it. Does he just dismiss bad and walk around it? No, he doesn't. He shows it. He shows how stupid it is. We, we still see how, you know, the guys who killed themselves in the partner's tale last week, the three murderers. We don't pass that off. They're murderers. And I think we think they're damned. So, but Chaucer doesn't mourn or mope or... You know, he presents them in this comic spirit because of everything that I've said. Everything he learned from Dante, everything he learned from our faith, everything he learned from Boethius. Mike, does that answer your... You, I'm sorry, I forgot. You weren't here last week, but we, we spent a good amount of time talking about this because I, I hope you can see it, it's so important to the work we've been doing. And in, in, it's, in an amazing way, it speaks so directly to our faith and something we should know and our and it's amazing that we can grow up you know with these things and not i wish our i i wish we were doing better as a church teaching these things you know but mike does that thank you yes yeah that that was i, I think i get it now about the the comic aspect yes that's why faulkner um, what, because some of Fargo's works are dark. Dostoevsky, some of his works are dark. Uh, Moby Dick, dark. Modern writers are going to call those, those works tragic. There's no way they're tragic. They're, I would call them, if we use Dante's scheme, I would call them purgatorial comedy. Purgatorial comedy. People are having to undergo a suffering, but they're, but they're moving towards the goodness 
you know, that we've talked about since we started talking about Boethius. Those are forms of purgatorial comedy. Is that okay? Thanks. I got an okay from Suzanne. If I get an okay from her, I'm okay. <laughs> okay any more any more on this? Okay, let's here. I want to go to something comic here. Um, I want to get to these men, but um, um, before we do, I want to take a look at to, to see if to shed another comic light. Go to Chaucer's own story, the the tale of Sir Topaz, on page one seventy seven. Where do you can you get on your book and do you guys have the are do you have the same page number as I do or do you have the older copy? You do okay, on page. 176. I just want to look at this briefly to underscore the point that we're making right now because I think it's just hilarious. Um, this is part of the comic spirit of the whole thing. Remember, Chaucer is one of the pilgrims, okay? He's on this pilgrimage with these men, so he's hearing these stories. Now, one of the things that, don't forget this, all these people are telling their stories. Do you think they told them in rhyme, in rhyming couplets? No, they did not. They told these stories. So Chaucer's taking these stories of these people and trying to be faithful to their characters. Some, sometimes the meanness in them. I mean, very often they're mean to each other. When, you know, when the reeve tells a story, or the miller tells a story in, on a carpenter, the reeve gets really upset and wants to tell a story on a, on, a, on a miller. So the characters are constantly trying to get back at each So Chaucer is showing how instinctive it is to get back at somebody. And somebody hurts us, our natural response is not to turn the cheek, it's to get back. Um, so Chaucer is a pilgrim. He's on this pilgrimage. So all these people are telling their stories. Obviously, they're not telling them in rhyme. So here, once again, is this what I'm calling this comic spirit at work. What he's doing is trying to be faithful to these storytellers, these pilgrims but presenting it in a way that holds on to some goodness, even if what they're doing is mean to each other. Is that clear? It's like it's being transmuted or transformed by a charity. So even while they're being faithfully rendered, we can still enjoy them. He's teaching us to laugh at people. Is that, that's so absolutely clear. Did that, was that clear? Connie, no, ask me. Was it? We're getting these people with all of their foibles, all of their weaknesses, and Chaucer's being faithful to them. He's not disguising it. The meek, the, you know, the meanness comes out. We'll, we'll, we saw it at the remember at the end of last week, the partner and the host were fighting with each other. Um, but Chaucer renders it in a way um, that's that holds on to a harmony and a beauty. And, and a humor, the, the rhyming, so that we're being encouraged to keep this spirit of charity alive in the way that we look at other people. Yeah? Okay? Okay. 177. So finally the host steps up now after we've had a number of tales and says to Chaucer, you tell a story. Okay, now here we go. What, so, Tava 170, what man are you, said he, you look as if you were trying to find a hare, scanning the ground with such a steady stare. 
Come near, man, look up. Look merrily. Make room there, gentlemen. Let this man have place. He's shaped about the waist the same as me, so they've got to be overweight. Both of them. Um, he'd, he'd be like a poppet to embrace for any woman's small and fair face. So how can you not laugh at the rhymes? I mean, whatever he's describing two men who are overweight, but we keep hearing these rhymes. I mean, they, they, it's just hard not to laugh, to feel as if something fun is going on. He never speaks a word in dalliance. Say something now, as other folk have done, and let it be a tale of mirth. At once, host, I replied, I hope you're not one to take, take it in a bad part if I'm a dunce. I only know a rhyme, which for the nonce I learnt. That's good, he said. Well, take your place. It should be dainty, judging by your face. So we learn a couple of things about Faulkner. He's probably got a... Not Faulkner. I mean, sorry, God, Chaucer. It's like, um, that he's, um, what, probably a little bit refined, maybe a little bit sensitive or, so, you know, still a little overweight. But, but now, here's what's going to happen. Chaucer, who has masterfully given us the Canterbury Tales... You know, um, faithfully rendered each of these stories by all these pilgrims. Now he's going to step up and tell a story, okay? Now he's, he's shown what a master of language, I hope it's true, I hope you can see the truthfulness of He's shown what a master of language is and a master of music. He has an ear for harmony and beauty and music, and he Whatever he does with his words holds on to that music sense. That's why we keep reading lyrics. You know, I've been saying that from the to to hold on to that music center at the center of God's harmony. So Chaucer starts his tale. Listen, lords, with all your might, and I will tell you, honor bright, a tale of mirth and game about a fair and gentle knight in battle, tournament, and fight. Sir Tobes was his name. Okay, quick. Here's a quick test. Connie, we're back in what middle school? We're back in middle school. <laughs> okay, Connie, here's here's your test question. This is coming from the teacher at the at the at the front of the class. What's the rhyme scheme, Connie? Give me the rhyme scheme. Take a look at it. Listen, lords, with all your might, and I will tell you, honor bright, a tale of mirth and game, about a fair and gentle knight, a battle, tournament, and fight. Sir Topaz was his name. What's the rhyme scheme? I don't know. Where we're gonna find out. We're, what? Come on. <laughs> what do you got? I have nothing. <laughs> oh, come on. I don't believe that. Probably. Oh, all your might, honor bright. Right. So A A B. First three lines. Take the next three lines. B B C. No B A B. Knight fight. So A A again. And, and then, then C. Right, well, B, because game, it rhymes with. So A, B, A, A, B. A, B, A, A, B. Yeah. No. <laughs> right, A, A, B, A, B, A, A, B. Okay, does everybody see right away? That's different from A, A, B, B, C, C, you know, the rhyming couplets. Because we've talked, right? Faulkner, Gen Chaucer generally goes in rhyming couplets. <laughs> God, somebody help me. Somebody help me, too. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be together, Connie. Um, all I can tell you is I know that I'm good. I'm in good hands, even if I can't say as much for you, but with me, I'm in good hands with you. Um, does everybody see that? There's a, there's 
a variation in rhyme. What does that tell you? Hold on just for a second. We talked about this. What's the natural response to hearing a letter, a, a sound, like, Listen, lords, with all your might, and I will tell you honor bright. What's your natural response? I'm talking about emotionally, just at a gut level, of hearing a sound picked up and repeated. It's pleasure, isn't it? Hickory dickory dock, the mouse run up the clock. That's a pleasure. That's a harmony we pick up. The natural effect is pleasure. So what's the effect when you go a tale of gentle game about a fair and gentle knight? Now suddenly it's A, A, B, and there's no rhyme for B. You have to go three more lines before you get it. A, A, B again. Does everybody see he's delaying the rhyme? So there's not an immediate pleasure. Things are a little bit off kilter. Does everybody see that? So it's like a music note that promises harmony and then doesn't deliver at least for a moment. So something's not quite right. Is everybody following? Maria, are you following? I'm trying, but no, I'm not good with poetry. I know, no, no, come on, I don't want to lose you. I'm not, come here, show, show me your, can I, can you show an audio because I want to, or I mean a visual because I want to see you. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to wrestle with you. All right. All right. Maria, hi, it's good to see you. I'm, I'm so glad you let me pick on you the way I do, who I am. Maria, this is, don't, because I know, I remember your words last week. I don't want you to make this harder than it is. Rhyming just means A, A, B, B, right? That's what Chaucer's done, right? You see that. Except here, things are different, right? So something's happening. I just, that's all. I just want you guys to be aware of that. Okay. It's, so instead of the A, A, B, B, the couplets rhyming, suddenly something's not the same. Orally, that's all, okay? Now, Watch what happens here on page 178. Um, Sir Topaz, who has this vision of himself as this heroic knight. Remember, one of the great themes of Chaucer's um, courtly romance and the heroism of the knight, the knight in shining armor. That was the knight in the knight's tale, Theseus, remember? So Topaz has this vision of himself as being this very heroic knight in the middle of 178. Fulminia maiden, bright and bower, lay longing for him hour by hour, who should have been asleep, but he was chased and fled the power of lechery, chased as bramble flower, where red the berries creep. So um, he's asleep and he has this dream, and we're giving this image that women would admire this guy. It so befell upon a day, as I'll tell truly, if I may, Sir Tobaz went to ride. He mounted on his steed of gray, and lance in hand he rode away, a long sword by his side. Now you continue to hear those same rhyme schemes, right? A-A-B, A-A-B. So there's a pattern, even if it's not royal couplets. Yeah? Now, what does he do? He sets off on his quest as a knight on page 179, and as he's riding... He looks around and he hears these birds singing and sees these flowers. The birds were, so 179, the birds were singing, let me say, the sparrow hawk and popinjay. It was a joy to hear 
the um, thistle cock attuned his lay, the turtle dove upon the spray, saying very loud and clear. Sir Topaz fell in love longing on hearing thus the throstle sing, and spurred away like mad. His steed was hot with galloping, and sweated so a man could ring him out, so sweat he had. So as a knight, what's the first thing that he does? And what's he doing? It, it does, it, does this conform to the ideal of a knight, or is it changing from the ideal of a knight? No. What's going on? He's romanticizing everything. He looks at the birds and the flowers, and he gets, the, lo the word is love longing. You can see this guy romanticizing and enjoying the birds and the flowers, and it's all romanticized. And so this is the first thing, the description of this night. So it, 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 nightfall comes, and the first thing he does, and down a few lines, that down he lay as bold as brass and eased his steed by a morass, where there was splendid forage. Saint Mary Benedicti, he said, what love has done to me, it binds my heart, no joke. By God I dreamt all night, he said, of elfin queen, my mistress be, and sleep beneath my cloak. I'll have an elfin queen, I declare, in all the world there's none so fair or worthy to be mine in town. Now, so he dreams of having this woman, this elfin queen, so, so he's got this love longing for the birds and the flower, and the first thing he does is go to sleep. So, not much heroic action here. Now look at what happens, though, um, on page 180, a few lines down. As soon as fast as he had flown, he found a secret place and lone. Sweet fairyland, I mean, so wild. Now we've got the same rhyme scream, A-A-B, A-A-B, but now we've got a little bob, an extra little foot. So things are I don't, a little bit, what to call it, it's a little bit of an anomaly. There's something strange happening that's signaled by the rhyme, yeah? For not a soul in all that zone there was and not a face was shown. Nobody's there, no woman nor a child, until a mighty giant came. On him, Sir Elephant, by name, a perilous man indeed, who said, Sir Knight, by fire and flame, be off. By termagant, I'll, I'll maim you and your sturdy steed with mace. There's that bob again. Unless you go. So there's this giant appears that's going to protect the fairy queen. Apparently this is the queen that Tobias dreamed about. But the, um, Topaz says, by all that's blue tomorrow I'll meet with you when I have got my armor, and then I hope to make you dance um, with this my slender little lance, and you shall be the warmer, your belly. <laughs> so the rhyme scheme is getting thrown off. He's a knight. He has no armor. <laughs> he's going he's to woo this woman, and he's facing this giant, and he has to turn away because he doesn't have all the equipment that he needs. So the giant throws stones at him, and... Topaz goes off on 181. He gets back to town again. He ordered all his merry throng to cheer him up with sport and song, for he would have to fight a three-head giant very strong to gain the transports that belong to love and lady bright. Come forth, he said, my minstrels all, you storytellers in my hall, and tell me while I arm romances such as may befall. So immediately he goes back to town and he tells all the minstrels to sing the story about all these heroic deeds. So they wine and dine him, um, and then the next day on 182, 
they arm him. They put on page 182 in the middle, boiled leather on his shins had he, his sword was shed, sheathed in ivory, his helm was copper bright, his saddle was of um, narwhal bone, his bridle shone like precious stone, or sun or moon at night. So he's got on this beautiful armory ready to go out again. Remember what were his last words to the giant? I'll meet you tomorrow. What does Sir Topaz do? <laughs> so he's armored, he's dressed for combat, and he starts his second fit, the second part of his story, the bottom 182. Now hold your tongues for charity, my noble knights and ladies free. He's talking to his, you know, the other pilgrims. Listen to my spell to battle and to chivalry, and making love in, want, in wantonry, for such is what I tell. <laughs> making love with women, and he names all these other knights. His worthy steed he then bestrode, and forth upon his way he glowed like sparkle from a flame. And on his crest he bore a tower, and struck thereon a lily flower. God guard him from all shame. And as he was a valiant knight, he sought no home at evening night, but laid him down on earth. So, now remember, go back to 180. Because in 180, when, he, when Chaucer describes the elfin kingdom that he enters, the rhyme scheme gets all screwed up. It's no longer A-A-B, A-A-B. Look at it. For not a soul in all that zone there was, and not a face was shown, A-A. No woman nor a child until a mighty knight came, B-C. On him Sir Elephant by name, a perilous man indeed, who said, Sir Knight, by fire and flame, be off by termogen all maim, you and your sturdy steed. With So A-A-B-C-C-D-C-C-D-E-F-F-E. Is everybody following? The rhyme scheme is, it's still there, but it's buried, and it's not steady. It's a little bit scrambled. It's still there. Now he returns to it, you know, as he describes, the, it's the A-A-B, A-A-B again. But when he starts the second fit, the second part of his story, he turns to the pilgrims and describes um, Tobaz going off again. And then coming to evening again. And he was a valiant knight, he sought no house at evening light, but laid him down on earth, wrapped in his hood his helm a pillow, and tied his palfrey to a willow, it gazed to keep its girth. But he drank water from the well, as did the knight Sir Percival. Sir Percival was one of the greatest knights in Arthur's court. If you know anything about the Arthur, he's just one of the great knights. So he drinks water from a well, as did the knight Sir Percival, that worthy man at arms till on a date. Now suddenly, as, as Chaucer's going on with this story, the host says, No more of this for God's dear dignity, our host said suddenly, You're wearying me to death, I say with your illiterate stuff. God bless my soul, I've had enough. My ears are aching from your frowsy story. The devil takes such rhymes. They're purgatory. <laughs> we all know the experience of having to suffer through something we just don't want to hear. They must be what's called doggerel rhymes, said he. Why? Now this is Chaucer. This is the master. This is the writer of the Canterbury Tale. He's one of the greatest poets in the English language. Certainly one of the closest to our faith, from everything, if you're taking seriously everything I've said. Why so, said I, why should you hinder me in telling my tale more than another man, since I am giving you the best I can? By God, he said, but plainly in a word, your dreary rhyme it isn't worth a turd. <laughs> he goes on. <laughs> so, Chaucer, I mean, yeah, Chaucer goes on to defend himself some more. 
Um, um, and finally he reaches a point at the bottom of 184. Um, let's see. To enforce its meaning in the moral sphere, if the words I use are not the same as you have heard, I beg you not to blame my variations. In my general sense, you won't find much by way of difference between the little treaties as it's known and this a merry story of my own. Now he says he's going to tell a story in verse, I mean, sorry, in prose. And we, it's not here in our edition. It's a long story in prose. It's sort of boring. It's about um, um, a man and a wife whose daughter is injured. And there's a debate between the two of them whether to show mercy to the men who hurt their daughter. The wife's position is to, to, to spare them, to show mercy. The husband's position is to, um, to exact justice. And the debate takes place, and finally the, the, the husband makes concessions to the wife and is only going to let the men off with um, a, a minor uh, punishment. But he even lets that go. So the, the wife wins out in the debate between the two, and in a sense it's an, a, it's an exemplum, an example of mercy in responding to an injustice. And we don't know the outcome of what happened to the daughter. But Chaucer tells this long story, and it's in prose. Now, I want to go back. Before the, the tale of Melaby, this long story that we don't get, it's, it's, it's just a summary of what it is. What is Chaucer doing with a surpassed story? Why does he do this? What's he, this is one of the greatest masters of the English language in, in the tradition. I'm not exaggerating. What he does with language is extraordinary. The beauty of the music the comic spirit that I've been talking about, um, the profundity of his vision of human sin and mercy. You know, it's all been there. What's he doing in this story of Sir Topaz? And why, why is it here in this pilgrimage? Connie. Oh, you're already calling me. You got to call oh, somebody else. <laughs> Sorry, I thought the the light, the 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 frame around your picture went on, and I thought you'd. Oh no! I... Anybody, Mike, you got a thought? What's he doing? It seems like kind of an exercise in humility for him to portray himself as such a uh, a dunce, literary dunce. Yes. Yeah. What is he teaching us about stories? This, in one sense, this is his way of helping us to understand what good art is. It's, Dante did the same thing, that Dante critiques art, all, remember, all the way through the Divine Comedy. He's telling a story and showing um, that he's completely incompetent. He can't tell a story. But what does the story itself tell us about storytelling? What happens in this story, of any note? Nothing. Not much. It's a, a lot of preparation and no action. Yeah. A lot of intention and no action. Doc, did you want to? Nothing. Nothing happens. Nothing. He lives in a dream world. He's at, and, he, and he, I mean, to the way he presents himself, he's this great knight. He has all these ideals, he wants to do this, he wants to have this elf and queen he dreams about. 
but he goes off and love longing. He loves flowers and birds. Um, he, he meets the knight and tells the knight he's going to come the next day. All these people put armor on me, and, or this giant, and he doesn't. He doesn't go back. And he goes to sleep again. And it's then that the host interrupts him and says, Stop, I've had enough of this. Chaucer's showing us that a real story has to has to show something going on that's of some importance, that it speaks to us, it shows us something about ourselves or our human nature. And, it, and, it, and, and in a sense, it goes again to his faith. You know, take the parable of the talents by Christ. He gave these talents to these people. One of them was afraid that he wouldn't be able to do anything with it and buried it. Christ was not happy with that. Each one of us is given something to do, whatever it is. It, I mean, what, what Chaucer's doing is parodying um, courtly romance and the ideal of the knight. Percival was a real knight and a, and a great knight. But he's making fun of all the knights who set off to do things and don't. And we've already learned from so many of the other tales that in courtly romance, what happens among the men and women is violent. They treat each other in nasty ways. So, in one sense he's critiquing his own art and saying that real art has to show us something. It just can't be a display of something, you know. Um, it, it's a wonderful critique. And, and Mike, to take up your point, uh, to me, I, I think you're right on. It's, it's also, I think, a way of showing um, the importance of humility. Every one of the other, almost every one of the other writers is taken up in vanity with themselves. They're vain about themselves. And they can't get past their pride, so when somebody does something they don't like, their natural response is to requite it, to get back at it. So there's this um, spirit, this eye for an eye. Actually, it was the reading, I think it was the reading in Mass yesterday. You know, turn the other cheek, not an eye for an eye. That um, the Chaucer is showing um, he's setting in contrast a spirit of humility next to the vanity that we see so often in so many of the pilgrims. Um, sorry, I'm sorry, did somebody somebody have a thought or comment? Boy, we're missing... Um, any questions about that? Anne, you've got a comment on that? Mike, you still no. so good. Sorry, go ahead. I, I guess the only thing that I would add is I think his negative example just makes the rest of it stand out. It really points to how well done the rest of it is by contrast. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Another way to put that is not only how important it is to. Um, Except the, the part, the irony, the real irony is Chaucer can laugh at himself. You know, he can laugh at himself. And it, you know, it, I, I don't, I can't remember in my reading of the, 
of the other pilgrims, the same kind of, most of them take themselves too seriously. They, all of them take themselves too seriously. Chaucer can laugh at himself. It's part of the comic spirit that we see that, you know, that I've been stressing tonight and all that we've said that he brings this amazing spirit of charity, gladness to so much of what he does. Um, he can even make fun of himself. But I think it's also important to, to see that he's showing us what real art does, that real art struggles with. It has to show human beings struggling to do something, even if they fail. So many of the knights in the round table failed in the Arthurian romances. You know, the, the kingdom goes down at the end. Um, what's the name of the kingdom? Camelot. Camelot goes down. Um, so Chaucer's aware of all that. He's, he's parodying it. He's making fun. There's this tendency in human beings to idealize something and so idealize it that they don't do something. They're, it's like they're trapped in an ideal world. And he's making fun of it in this thing that the nature of the story is that you've got to show people doing something. That means in real life people have to do something. Whatever it is we do, it can be small, but it's still, we're doing something. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful comic parody of... Um, here, I, any, any comments? Maria, did that help? Maria, are you there? She ran away. <laughs> um, anybody else have any questions on this? Um, some of those of you who are, you know, visually not present, Tess or... Yes, I, I just have a comment that uh, I was curious about the name of the knight, Sir Topaz, and so I did a little research on the, the meaning of the of the... The, the ideas of the gemstone topaz, and it means uh, healing and forgiveness, as a, is representative by the by the gemstone topaz. So I thought it was very you know very interesting to me that he called the knight Sir Topaz. Topaz. Who, who is the speaking? This is Tess Avelina. Tess, can you come on? Can you give a? Uh, I, don't have, I don't have good lighting here. Oh, <laughs> so. God bless. What a wonderful, what a what a wonderful comment! I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I miss your image, but I. Yeah, so you'll, you'll see me at the dinner. So. Okay. <laughs> I'll um, come to the hall at the dinner. Tess, flesh that out a little bit more, can you? Can you connect to what we've been saying about topaz? I I just think your comment is right on, and you obviously did something with it. So can you can you relate it directly to the what we've been talking well, about? So the uh, I found that. The whole story, and this was representative of Chaucer speaking himself. I thought it was very interesting, and 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 like you filled you filled us in on the uh, you know the role of the knight that really didn't do anything, and it was you know not no heroic deeds came out, um, and but it, I think that the whole the whole story is more of, of Chaucer's comment on the whole tales is that. You're looking at people, and you're looking at them through a lens of forgiveness and healing, mm -hmm. just as Christ would have looked at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you put that in. I mean, it, I'm glad. It's just another way of saying what I've been trying to say: that there's this extraordinary charity, the spirit of charity, in in which 
that Chaucer brings to everything he does. Um, and, and I want to underscore this again. I, I, I don't know if it's Anne or... I'm sorry I'm not making connections going back, but it seems to me one of the most important things that Chaucer is showing us here is um, a spirit of humility. And I, I, to, to relate this more directly to Topaz, um, Chesterton has this famous comment where he says, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. One of, the, one, of, one of the problems I think we create for ourselves as human beings is that we have these ideals, like Topaz. We've got these great ideals of ourselves, and if we get caught in them, it keeps us from doing things. We can't measure up. We're too critical of ourselves. That was a serious thing in Dante with the winding around in judgment as the, as the souls were sent to their various levels. This tendency to be self-accusing. Because that's an expression of a pride in ourselves, you know, to, that we don't show a mercy to ourselves is a fault. And, and I'm going to go farther. If we don't show a mercy to ourselves, how in the world can we bring to other people? Um, anyway, one of the remarkable qualities to Chaucer is the humility. It seems to me he's showing us indirectly is that it's only when you get yourself out of the way that you can do what he did in the stories. That's what he did. Um... So Topaz is, a, in a sense, a parody, a contrast, in Anne's term, of, you know, between all these other stories and what he does with them there and what goes on here. Put it differently, um, would, would all the other stories have been the same if the storytellers had told their stories in a spirit of humility? They don't. I mean, the, the, the whole point of it is they're... All of these people have faults. All of us do. All of us do. The question is, can we laugh at them? Can we bring a spirit of charity to the way we look at them? Chaucer does. It, it's so Catholic. I mean, he, this, this is the Catholic... Joyce's description of the Catholic Church is, here comes everybody. Remember that. That's James Joyce's description. Here comes everybody. Okay. Everybody remember that. Here comes there. That's what Catholicism means. In the Canterbury Tales, everybody's there. They're doing the worst of things, the most stupid of things, and Chaucer's showing us humans doing things that are damnable, humans doing things that are laughable, things that are, you know, stupid, some, and some, seem, some things that are heroic, but they're all there. And it brings to all of it this extraordinary spirit of faith and charity. Maria, does that help? Do you have a question on that? Yes, and that helps. Thank you. Yeah. I think next week I'm going to ask some of you to read aloud because it's just, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm saying this because it, it, it should be a joy for all of us to read Chaucer even if we're shy, because it's just a delight to hear. You know, we're, you know, I've been saying this all along. Poetry is meant to be heard. We have to read it. So I think I'll make more time for reading next week. I want to take just a few minutes on one of the tales because we're late. Go to the um, um, Friar's Tale on page 296, just quickly. The some so the because the the partner told a tale on a friar, 
the friar is going to get back and tell the story on the on the seminar. So on page 293, he tells the story of a summoner going off one day and and in his travels towards this one woman he was intending to go to, he comes across this yeoman who presents himself as a yeoman and as they go along he discovers that the yeoman is a devil in disguise on page... So this is Satan. This is a devil. So, so here's this comic writer who's dealing with a human being, a, a, a summoner, a man who's supposed to bring healing and solace to the people in the church. Page 296, the two men join, and you know the, the summoner is up front about the fact that he cheats people, that he uses their, their um, difficulties as a way of cheating them out of money. Page 296, um, I'll beg acquaintance with you for a start in brotherhood, if, if that's fair to offer. I have some gold and silver in my coffer. And should you chance to cross into our shire, all shall be yours, as much as you desire. My word, the summoner answered, thanks a lot. The pair of them shook hands upon the spot, swore to be brothers to their dying day. So they sworn together to be brothers, to be faithful to each other. As they go along, the devil discloses himself. At the bottom of 297, he says, I'm the devil, and I use my powers to trick people. 298 the summoner asks why the devil changes shape. Okay, here's Boethius again, but in a subtle way. On page 298 in the middle. The day is short and it's long past prime, and yet I've taken nothing the whole day, and I must think all of business if I may, rather than air my intellectual gifts. Besides, you lack the brains to catch my drift. So the devil is telling the, the summoner that he doesn't have the wit to understand anyway. But this is this is crucial because it, it's, it's an indirect way of, of expressing a truth that we got from Boethius. If I explained, you wouldn't understand, yet since you ask why we're a busy band, it's thus. So why these devils are going about and how they take change shapes was the summoner's question, and the devil's trying to give an easy answer to it. It's thus, at times we are God's instruments, a means of forwarding divine events when he so pleases that concern his creatures by various arts, disguised by various features. Now, I want to put this, I, I want, this is so important. Satan rebelled, right, because he was the brightest of the angels, the, the most intelligent. I've already said, I mean, some of you may disagree with this, I wouldn't want to fool around with him. I mean, every one of us at some point has got to say to Satan, no, stop. But to try to play games with him or act as if we could engage in a contest with him and come out ahead is tempting the devil. He's in, greatly smarter than we are. Now, if the devil is setting out to do everything he can to undermine God, God who is infinite wisdom will do what? According to Boethius. Holy cow. And what's God going to do? If Satan is this really brilliant angel, he's the brightest of all of them, and he's going to set out to trick human beings. Satan is so bright. What will God do with what Satan does when God is infinitely brighter than Satan? Mike. Bring out the good out of the evil. Yeah, right? 
And the interesting here, the devil knows this. And thus sometimes we are God's instrument, a means for forwarding divine events when he so pleases. So it's as if he still is going to be a devil knowing no matter what he does, God's going to use him as an instrument for bringing some... Anyway, they go along, the two of them together. They've made this bond. And on page 300, they come across this farmer who's trying to crotch this, um, this way that's deep and muddy. And the farmer says on 300, Hey, Brock, hup, Scotty, never mind for stones. The foul fiend comes and fetch you. It's like saying, gee, damn, you know, damn you and swearing. And um, as sure as you were full mud, ruts, and rubble, Lord, what a team. I never known such trouble. The devil take all cart, horse and hay in one. The devil take you all. He's cursing them. Immediately, the, the, the summoner says, you got your chance. Because remember, the summoner's just greedy. He just wants to get money. And the devil is too. He, he wants to use people greed. And this farmer curses the, 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 the horses, and the yeoman says, here's your chance to take them. What does the devil say? Listen to that, dear brother. Use your head. Didn't you hear what the old carter said? Take it at once. He gave them to you all. Don't you believe it, he said, the fiend says. I heard, but he meant nothing by it. Take my word. Go up and ask him. You don't trust me, or else keep quiet for a bit and see. Now the carter hacks the horses, and they get out. Said he pull out of the ditch. What did I tell you, said the fiend just now, that that ought to make it clear to you, dear brother, the chap said one thing but meant another. So the devil is teaching the, the yeoman, be careful because there's very often a difference between the surface meaning of words and what they mean underneath, the spirit that informs them. So if somebody says, gee damn it, he can be swearing, but, but he, the likelihood is he won't be taking God's name in vain. The second commandment is, do not take God's name in vain. It doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't presume to speak for God. The ultimate end of a man is not in our hands. It's in God's. We cannot speak for him. Is that clear? So swearing and using his name is not a sin. I mean, it's a swearing. But it's not the same thing as the presumption of speaking for God. Okay? Now, they go on to this woman where the summoner expects to get this money, and he tries to trick the woman and convince her that he got her husband off, and the woman gets angrier and ang angrier. He says, give me a pan and that'll pay for it, and she refuses, top of 302. Um, he's, the, the, the summoner says he got her husband off, um, you cuckled your husband. Did I pay for the um, connection, correction then, or did I not? You lie, she said, on my salvation. What correction? Whether as a widow or as a wife, I never had a summons in my life. I never cuckolded my poor old man. And as for you and for your frying pan, the hairiest, blackest devil out of hell, carry you off and take the pan as well. Seeing her kneel and curse, the devil spoke. Now, Mother Mabel, is this all a joke, or do you really mean the things you say? The devil, she said, can carry him away with pan and all unless he will repent. Unless he will repent. No, you old cow, I have no such intent. The summoner's not going to repent. For anything I ever had of you, I'll strip you naked, smock and rag and clout. At that moment, the devil takes him to hell. And for, for our purpose here, 
it, it ends that way. I mean, the seminar gets taken off to hell with the devil. Let me stop here because we're about out of time. We're out of time. What is, what is Chaucer showing us here? The carter curses his team and horse because they get caught in the, you know, in the mud, but they get free, and he curses them, and the devil says he didn't, his words didn't mean what they said, but the real meaning of it is not as, you know, what, what he gave them. For, for, you to interpret, for you to interpret that way, the chap, the chap said one thing, but he meant another, so let's go on a bit, you mustn't scoff. He's instructing him. You've got to learn to make a distinction between the literal meaning of something and what's really intended, what's meant. Here, the woman means it. When she curses him, says, go to hell, the devil says, do you mean it? She says, absolutely yes. This is a human curse that has efficacy. The devil takes him off. So what are some of the things we're seeing in this story about this churchman? Remember, we just looked at Sir Topaz, and we're seeing that a story in a story, a good story, something has to happen. It has to begin somewhere. It has to go somewhere. What's happening in this story? And um, how do we look at the summoner? <laughs> Remember, this is the friar now telling a story on a summoner. How do we look at the summoner afterwards? Do any, of, do any of you not find it surprising that the woman's curse is effective, that it's actually carried out? What do you guys make of that? This is our Catholic faith in some sense, I think. What's, what's Chaucer doing? Is it that judgment again? Be careful not to judge people? Well, yeah, for sure, Connie, that's one of the things. I mean, it clearly, um, I mean, we're learning that again and again in every one of the stories to be careful. But in this case, do you think the woman's curse then was bad against God? The summoner, the summoner goes to hell. Yeah, she, she sent him to hell, and that's God's job. I mean, that only God can judge in that respect. Okay, let me go back. I'm so glad to hear. Um, this is one of the tough things that defines Catholicism. You know from the work that we've done together, my reading of that passage where Christ, the disciples come back to Christ and Christ says, what are the people, who do the people say I am? Remember? And they say, I don't know. And he asks them and they say, we don't know. And then he turns to Peter and says, who do you say I am? We've talked about this a number, because to me it's, it's an extraordinary passage. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're not just Jesus, you are the Christ. And remember we've talked about the taking of the auspices, that it's prophetic. We've talked about the taking of the auspices, you have an omen, but it has to be confirmed in the pagan world. Um, so Peter um, offers a prophetic statement, a truth. He says, you are the Christ. And Christ said, nobody said that to you. It was the Spirit of the Father. But Peter could not have come to that on his own. That means an omen, a prophetic moment, is confirmed 
not just by any confirmation, it's confirmed by God himself. It's the word. Yeah? You are the Christ. Which means that in that moment, Peter has an extraordinary power nobody else has. Does he look any different from the other disciples or look any different than he did five minutes before? No, he didn't. He's the same man. Yeah? But something's happened to him in that he sees Jesus as Christ, as God. And Christ says, um, you know what he does. And it's in that scene that he gives Peter the keys and he says, who you bind, you'll bind. Who you loosen, will loosen. Every Catholic is asked to be priest, prophet, king. This is sort of scary to me. I mean, it, it actually does shake me a little bit. Peter's given the keys to the kingdom, which, which means he has a power. This is what the Protestant world does not want to allow. He has a power nobody else on earth has, conferred by Christ. Right? And we know that popes have abused that. We know in Dante, <laughs> there's probably more popes in hell than there are other Catholics. So it's not as if popes can't abuse their power, because they have. Um, but that's an extraordinary power. Wouldn't you agree? You have the power to bind and loose. That me and I, I just I've thought about that a lot. And Father Flynn said something to me when he was at St. Francis that so opened that door in that. Without that authority, could the church have fought off evil in the world and in the church itself? Asking it seriously. Without that power, look at what the inherent evil in priests, bishops, anybody in the church could do to the church. Take that power away. What happens to the church? Is everybody following me? Is everybody? Anybody have a question? I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to assume things here or, or go too fast. That's an extraordinary power. The world doesn't recognize that. Peter, the chair, the chair of Peter, has an authority given by God to bind and loose. Could he protect the church without it? I would say no. Evil's too great. Put Satan in there without that power. How well would we do? Are you all following? I know yes. the world doesn't think like this, but it seems... So my question here is, here's this... So, here's this farmer who curses this team and horses... And the devil says, watch, and he says, he didn't mean what he said. Be careful of your judgments, because he meant something different. When the, when the summoner goes to the woman to extort her, to cheat her, she tells him she won't have anything to do with it, and then says, go to hell. She curses him, and, mean, and the devil says, do you mean it? She says, yes, I do, and the summoner goes to hell. Now, either, what, what do we make of that? I mean, what he's showing is, we have to be careful of our judgments, clearly, you know, with the, with the, the carter, the word, the farmer. But here, too, that people should take seriously their cursing. Because Christ is quite serious about dealing with evil. How many people, because most people, when they make a judgment against somebody else, people are going to say, you're being judgmental. You're being unforgiving. When P 
people do that, are they the question should be, are they working with God or against him, whether the world can see it or not? And how many people in the world are capable of seeing that? That's my question. Is everybody following? So here in this one story, Chaucer's really touching on a, tr a troubling truth at the center of our faith. If I put that clearly enough, are you guys all following? If you have a question, Connie, ask a question. You, you're good at. Are you seeing this? I guess I, with the, with the lady, um, that's the lay person that you know when she told him to go to hell and she meant it. I can't see myself <laughs> doing that to somebody. Yeah, 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 and yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that that part it's a little confusing how that was was she was able to condemn somebody like that, and I understand what you're saying. Watch watch your cursing, you know. Watch what you know. Don't don't do it. I you know. I yeah. can definitely see that. Yeah, the amazing thing about this is that she does it and it's real. So in one sense, for me, I mean, think about Chaucer. We've been talking about Chaucer's charity, you know, through the whole thing, but we're also looking at people who are damned. The partner in the story is damned. He's taken to hell. And it's a serious question, or the, you know, the seminar, the seminar. It's a serious question to me. If, we, if you remember last week when we read the partner, when the partner and the host got into a fight, it's a serious question for me where the partner stands. Because remember, after telling the story about these three men dying, killing each other, he immediately turns to the group and, <laughs> and tries to cheat them out of their money. And the, part, or the host gets so angry with him, he starts to fight with him. So there are these people who are so cunning and so, I don't know what to call it, so crafty in using other people. And he's a member of, he's a member of the church. I mean, he's a, he's a friar. So. so Chaucer's looking at our church and, what, and, and revealing... Um, corruptions in people. He's not showing corruption in the church. I mean, not in doctrine. I think that's where the Reformation went wrong. He's looking at people who are corrupt. But he's also revealing amazing truths that there is in our church um, this amazing authority given to Peter and by extension in some ways of members. That, that What he's saying is human beings have the capacity to say, get away Satan. If we're with, just hold on to this, you guys. If Christ defeated death, if he defeated death, we should have, and I say this a little bit trembling, we should have no fear about death ourselves. If he defeated evil, if we stand with him, we should be able to say, get off. So the real question is, how much do we stand with him? If we do, it seems to me we've got to be very careful in our judgments. We're asked to be charitable, to forgive. But um, we've also, we're also given the power to bind and loose with Peter. To say somebody, get away, Satan. Get away. So even though it's all treated comically and we can laugh it off because it's a funny story, Chaucer's showing an amazing thing. If you set the carter with his horses and buggy, you know, next to the woman, there's a serious contrast between somebody cursing somebody and not meaning it and somebody cursing somebody and meaning it 
So it's reminding us that if we stand with Christ, we've been given this extraordinary responsibility, this extraordinary power. It's important to take care of it. Let me stop. Connie, go ahead. Well, well, now, well, I was just—you were saying earlier the uh, G, the GD word. Yeah. You you said that's not a sin to say that. Yeah, I don't think about what the devil just said. I mean, somebody. So if somebody. I, by the way, I don't like swearing, and I. But I. Yeah. I use that term. My my daughter's working really hard to stop me from. Because when We're I get really, to say God bless instead of <laughs> they're asking me to say God bless. I, I can't. I can't even fathom saying. GD. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, I seriously cannot. Yeah, I know. Family members say it, and when they do, I like light into them. Like, <laughs> do you know what you're saying? <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I, I want to be really careful because the, I think really what the devil is saying is really true, and the church says it too. By the way, the church, the church has been far more allowing or accepting of swearing from the beginning than the Protestant. The Protestant is Puritanism. The church, you, you know, I can't go through all the swear words, but Bloody Mary and Jesus Christ and God damn and, you know, the, right. the, the church is always, because it knows there's a difference between saying Bloody Mary when when you're a Catholic and and taking God's name in vain. To take the place of God and presume to damn somebody is a dangerous thing. So yeah. it's just it's important to keep the distinction between being too literal and and making a judgment on the basis of something literal and missing the spirit. Because one of the things that's important for all of this work that we've been doing is Chaucer's spirit. It's easy for people to pass him off because he's so funny. But the point that I've been trying to stress over and over again is that humor is not manufactured. It's not artificial. It's an expression of a soul absolutely with Christ, in faith, in charity, seeing the world, um, um, not shying away from making judgments, but always in charity, in faith, in humor. He's doing what Dante did in the Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, the Purgatory. The, he's doing the same thing, except Remember, this is crucial. Dante was in a world of final ends. In the Divine Comedy, we're in final ends. We're in hell and purgatory, and things are already settled. So Dante's taking us to find... He's outside of the world. Chaucer's taking us into the world. We have to be even more careful of the judgments we make here. Because even, even if something is doing something damnable, we're still called to have hope to love that person, to try to do something to bring that person back. In Dante's world, that was already done. It was over. In this world, in Chaucer's world, they're on a pilgrimage. They're on their way. Changes can take place. Chaucer's showing us to be happy, to be glad, be careful of the way we see things, the judgments we make. And yet, in here, the amazing thing, he's, he's showing us how foolish it is to make a judgment that went because he, you know, he swore, damned the team. And the devil's saying quite clearly, you know, that isn't what he meant. You shouldn't, and, and watch, you know, the guy came in, he was just swearing. Whereas in the second instance, the woman was not just swearing, she was cursing him. And, and her words were efficacious. That's one of the amazing things about this story. Chaucer doesn't... Um, 
he doesn't avoid hard things. He looks at really hard things, but you can you can easily look past them because his spirit is so so humorous. Maria, ask a question because I know you've got them. I'm I'm serious. No, I can't. I can't believe. I must not be doing something right here because some of these things should be. Anne, you got a question? Michael, help me out. Help me. Okay. Uh, Good. I guess the the question, and I'm I'm a. I didn't read this tale. I, I was. I'm sorry, I got caught up reading some of the other tales that you didn't even. Don't apologize. Sorry. Don't apologize, Mike. Don't, sorry. Uh, but uh, so we're you're saying that the uh, the woman's the woman's curse was efficacious, but we're talking about and and it is a story, but we're talking about uh, a man who who was. Uh, committed great crimes, great sins in his uh, dishonest dealings with people. More, so, more so because he was a functionary of the church right. or seminary, yeah, right. So he, he, he damned himself, but the, the woman cursed him, and so I think we're, we're made to believe that uh, perhaps that uh, that God chose that moment for uh, for the summoner's life to end, and then he he doesn't have any chance for uh, uh, for confession of his sins. That but he's he's well, he did. He said you, he dies in his sins. He didn't repent. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he didn't. I mean, that's so telling. I mean, Chaucer's not. He's so good. You know, he got that in. He, um, I, I just think. Let me, let me. I, if, sorry, I, I hope I'm not. You go ahead, finish. If no, but I, I, it's uh, it's not like the woman's curse was effective upon a person who was not damned already. Right. Right. Okay. That's that's another way. That's I mean, it's a good way of putting how much she's in tune with God and in her dealing with evil. You know, this to me is, it, it makes me a little bit shaky. I, I mean, it's really interesting to, you know, to have grown in the faith over years. It, it sort of scares me sometimes. I'm, now I'm being honest with you guys. I look at a tale like this, and, and you know me, I can't, I can't overlook these things. I, they're there. So for me, they raise these extraordinary questions. I can't look past them. They're, they're just troubling questions. And the way he set it up, makes it harder because he, he shows an instance where somebody swears and it's clear we're meant to not take it seriously. We can't make a judgment on it. We can't condemn that person. The, you know, the, the farmer was swearing. Um, that He's not speaking for God. He's just swearing. But what's sort of frightening is what he's showing us is somebody can be in tune with God or out. I mean, you put it really well the way you did because the, the seminar's already damning himself what he's doing. It just shows the woman's in tune. He doesn't show us a woman damning somebody who's not damned, which would be a wrong on her part. But what he is showing is somebody doing what she does, that she curses him. It, it seems to me the tale should leave us um, 
um, being careful of making judgments of people who swear, on the one hand, and a little bit fearful and brave, knowing that if we don't stand in that way with God and oppose somebody, we may, like Dante in the Inferno, we may be actually standing against God in some way, that, that he's given us this terrible power, and so often we don't want to use it. It's a frightening power. I mean, it, it means we have to be far more careful in what we do with our words. And He's, saying, I, he's not saying don't swear, but what he's showing us is there is this extraordinary power in dealing with good and evil that rests in our church that presumably doesn't exist anywhere else. Who else is going to do this? A fundamentalist isn't going to get close. I, I don't think a fundamentalist would get close to this. Um, Peter, you are this rock on which I'll build my church. Here are the kings to the kingdom. You can loose, whoever you loose will be loose, and whoever you bind. That's a terrifying power. Um, Peter's got to exercise it. We saw the perfect example in Dante where the Pope, we talked about this when we were talking about the two keys and what they meant. The Pope um, exonerated, um, absolved the guy whom he wanted information from. So he was already damning himself and the Pope approved it. He was using the kingdom, the keys, for himself. It's one of the reasons Dante shows him in hell. So Dante is really clear-sighted. There's this great power there and Popes have abused it. People can. But um, it, the amazing thing about this is that Dante, or Chaucer is not showing us a Pope. He's showing us an ordinary woman that this is part of the burden that we carry in dealing with evil in our world. So it's something to take, it's something to be very, very careful with. Um, it's, an, it's an amazing story because it seems like nothing's going on. It's all comic. It is. And yet, it's touching on a, a very serious matter. Let me stop. We're way, I'm sorry. Uh, we're way past time. Any last comments on this, or I try and take my brain food for next week. You what? I try and take some brain food for next week. Oh, just <laughs> keep that keep that good heart of yours with your honey, and you will you will be fine. I, you don't need any other brain food than what that good heart of yours gives you. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I mean, I'm sort of amazed to go through this stuff. It's, it always takes us deeper into our faith so that it's something we just cannot take for granted. You know, it's, um, well, thank God for you because honestly, <laughs> well, I would, I was just thinking, you know, when we start, I mean, I, I remember Dante's line when he started the period, I'm saying this really seriously because I feel you are, I'm being honest. I was honest a minute ago and said, this stuff makes me a little bit nervous. But when you guys signed on, it, it's not as if you haven't had warnings. So that's all I can say to you guys. It's not as if you haven't been warned. We are going into deep waters. We have been entering deep waters since we began. So um, anyway, bless your souls. Um, please pray for Suzanne and me and for each other. Um, I'm glad that we could pray for all of you together. Um, keep, in addition to the people that you pray for, you know, the who are in need, like Joe and, you know, the others. Keep each other 
all of us in your prayers. Would you? Um, we're all we're all touching on difficult things here. We're touching on difficult things. Pray for the grace to receive these things and be careful in to trust in God, our faith in Him, and what we do with them. Okay. Bless you guys. Um, I'll see you. See you in a week. See you in a week. God bless you too. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.